an ongoing series of multimedia stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. This is our podcast, and I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. Today, we meet executive chef Bruce Hill of Zero Zero in San Francisco's Soma neighborhood. Chef Bruce has had a storied career in the San Francisco Bay Area and is also behind a number of other popular restaurants, including Bix and Pico. From getting inspired by Mario Batali to focus on Italian food, working with Michael Mina at Aqua, to traveling to Asia to learn Japanese cooking techniques, Chef Bruce has been enjoying a never-ending culinary adventure. Let's have a listen. We're here at Zero Zero with chef owner Bruce Hill. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Would you mind introducing yourself and describing Zero Zero in your own words? Sure. My name is Bruce Hill, and I'm the chef owner here at Zero Zero. Zero Zero is a California-Italian eatery, and it's a place where people really gather and celebrate. It's a party place. Music's a little loud, the lights are a little dim, and the food's really wonderful. We do wood-fired pizza, we make all of our own pastas, and all the food that we serve has a relationship to local farmers and ranchers and people who make great food in the Bay Area. That's great. So before we dive into Zero Zero, you are also the person behind a number of restaurants in the Bay Area. Can you describe what each of those are as well? Sure, sure. Well, I operate uh, four different restaurants in the Bay Area, and all of those restaurants fall under the umbrella of the Real Restaurants Group. So I have other business partners that um, manage Real Restaurants, which is 10 restaurants and a bakery. But within that group, I'm the executive chef and owner of Bix Restaurant, a supper club, kind of a really swanky, high-class saloon. I'm also the chef partner at Fog City, which is down on Pier 27, and then Pico, which is in Marin County. And Pico is actually two restaurants in one building. It's a small plate restaurant featuring California Italian cuisine as well, and then a wood-fired pizzeria. So there's definitely an Italian kind of theme to a couple of these. How did the Italian inspiration come about? Well, the Italian inspiration certainly didn't come from my upbringing. (laughs) Uh, I would say that that my love for Italian food started when I moved out to California in 1984. Um, I actually got my first job at a restaurant called Stars. We did a lot of Italian-inspired cooking there, and I learned more and more about Italian food. I actually started up a friendship with Mario Batali when I was working at Stars, and he was obviously a huge fan of Italian food and embraced all things Italian, so I think some of the love of Italian food started there in the 1980s. I think it would be hard not to get inspired and kind of fall in love with Italian food if you have a chance to work with Mario Batali. So that makes sense. And to be honest, he and I never actually worked at the same restaurant together. We worked at different restaurants, but he loved uh, Stars and would come by Stars after work. And we became drinking buddies and hung out together and talked Italian food. Fun. Yeah, fun. (laughs) I don't think I ever realized that he hung out here. Yeah. Mario lived in San Francisco for about two years. I always think of him as a New York chef. Yeah. No, he That's lived cool. He lived in uh, San Francisco, and he also lived in Santa Barbara, and then he went back to New York. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, he definitely, because he wears, like, Crocs a lot, so it kind of doesn't really evoke New York, I guess, all the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's not like anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> so then, so where did you grow up, and what brought you to this area? Um, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm basically a government brat. My dad worked for the National Institutes of Health. My mom was a school teacher. And I lived in the D.C. area in a couple different parts until I was 18 years old. When I turned 18, it basically, 
I had the bug. It was like, go west, young man. I actually had a friend living out here who had a flat up in the hate. And he said, hey, if you want to move out here, you can sleep on my couch. You know, see if you can find a job and see if you can carve out a niche for yourself. So immediately started applying at some of the better restaurants that were here at that time. And I didn't have that much experience. I had no culinary training. I didn't go to culinary school, but I just stuck my neck out and started showing up at places. The number one place I wanted to work at was Stars with Jeremiah Tower. Yeah, it was a big deal. I remember I read the review of Stars in Gourmet Magazine when I was back home before I moved out here. And I thought, wow, man, if I can work there, I'll learn a lot, you know. And that was what it was about. It was about learning back then. So what, why would you even, I mean, it's not very common for a lot of 18-year-olds or 17-year-olds to be reading things like Gourmet Magazine. What, what got you into that? Oh, um, I knew it was a resource where I could find out about restaurants in California. You know, it's amazing now you think with the Internet and how you would do it nowadays. But back then, there wasn't that many ways to do it. And back then, Gourmet did reviews in every issue of the magazine. So there was a review about Stars, which was a year old at the time. Wow. Yeah. What about the West Coast kind of planted that seed in your mind that you mentioned that made you want to move out here? You know, it's I can't really trace why I was so drawn to San Francisco, but I knew that there were great possibilities here. Ironically, I have a great-grandfather that brought his entire family out to San Francisco in 1907. Wow. So in some ways, I kind of relive the journey that Arthur Gable took. And Arthur moved out here right after the earthquake for all the economic opportunities that there were. And then lived out here. I think he and the family lived out here for about five or six years. And then they all went back to New York. But like I said, go west, young man. I, I'm not <laughs> sure, but there's always, and it's proven, there's there's great opportunities out here. Yeah, especially in food. Yeah. So what do you think got you interested in food? It sounds like you were already quite interested in it as a teenager. Yeah. What, what kind of sparked your interest there? Oh, definitely my mom's cooking and cooking at home, yeah. My mom was a really adventurous eater, and in her own 1970s way, dabbled a lot in different cuisines. I remember we would have Mexican night, or we would have Greek night, and she made me realize that there were other possibilities, you know, outside of meatloaf and burgers and, you know, typical American food of the time. So, yeah, I would really give my mom a lot of credit for just being adventurous. Did you ever cook with her? You know, I never cooked with my mom. Unfortunately, I lost my mom when I was 16 years old. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, But I I have great memories of the food that she would make. But no, she never... She never pulled me up beside her in the kitchen. I would do my own cooking after school before she got home. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Usually grilled cheese sandwiches, okay. you know? Um, but <laughs> so you got to start somewhere. Yeah, you got to start somewhere. Um, but I really remember more of going shopping with her. She would take me to the Greek deli, and she wanted to taste every type of feta cheese and every olive. And she showed me that, you know, flavor can be really satisfying and that flavor is something that you can really ponder and it's something that you can discuss with other people because everyone tastes just a little differently. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to eat food and talk about what you're tasting. And how you're experiencing it. Yeah. Do you remember what is your first memory of food and cooking? I have a couple of early food epiphanies. 
that were like really memorable flavors that I tasted. One of them was blackcurrant jellies. They were like these little British candies that were soft inside and had like a sugar coating on the outside. Mm -hmm. And I remember the flavor of blackcurrant really mystifying me. It's musty, it's sweet, it's uh, very floral all at the same time. I also remember one spring break, my grandmother had taken us to Florida. We were actually in an orange grove and I had my first cup of completely fresh squeezed orange juice. And that was a real epiphany. So I think I realized at a pretty early age that taste had a big impact on me. I remember the first time I tasted watercress. I was like, wow, this is crazy. (laughs) You know, and most kids would think it was bitter and probably wouldn't like it. But for me, it was just complicated and and different, you know, and I started to understand things that go really far on your palate, you know, that you can taste for a long time and change as you're chewing on it. There's also kind of something special to when you realize for the first time what something is supposed to taste like. Yeah, like the orange juice. juice. Yeah. 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 You're like, oh, this is this is what it was supposed to taste like. Yeah. Yeah, I had no idea. (laughs) I think I gave myself a bellyache that day. I drank (laughs) like ten cups of it. (laughs) (laughs) So, so you came out here and you were crashing on the couch in the hate with your friend. Right. How did you end up at Stars? You know, really, uh, perseverance. Back then, you bought the Chronicle and you looked through the want ads. And, you know, I looked for cooking jobs. But Stars was a place that I knew was really special. So they didn't have an ad up. But I just showed up. And, you know, (laughs) I I did my research and I knew that if you're going to show up and look for a cook job, you're going to show between 2 and 4 p.m. exactly. You're not going to bug anybody during lunch or dinner service. And you just got to keep showing up. And that's what happened. I think I showed up there three or four weeks in a row. And the the last time I showed up, someone had quit the day before. And they asked me to come in the next night and stage. And I was ready. I had sharp knives and I was ready to go. So what were you doing before this moment? Or did you just jump straight to trying to get into stars? You know, I'd been cooking back in Washington, D.C. a little bit. Okay. But just in like not very notable restaurants or yeah. anything. But I, I had knives, and I knew that at that point I wanted to be a, a chef. What did you kind of take away from that experience? Oh, my God, there's so much I took away from it. I didn't completely understand at the time how special that was. You know, the main thing with stars that really kept you on your toes and really enhanced the experience was how much they actually changed the menu. The menu at stars really changed every single day. Wow. There was something that changed on the menu or uh, quite a few things that changed every day. There was kind of a format for the menu, four salads, five starters, five entrees, five desserts, I think. There was an outline for the menu every single day. Purchasers would be bringing in different proteins for the following day. So initially when I started there, I just started as a prep cook and was doing very basic things like breaking down chickens and peeling and chopping tomatoes. But as time went on, I got to see seasonality. I got to see products coming in. I'll never forget when I saw um, the boxes of um, lettuce coming in the back door. And you know, I'm a newbie in California and these beautiful heads of lettuce that you just cut the bottom off and throw it in the sink and wash it. And they were perfect. And they were from Star Route Farm, which I still use to this day, which oh, yeah? is really neat. Yeah. Is it still a kind of a smaller farm? Um, Star Route is actually two farms. It's in Bolinas. And then their second farm is down in the desert so that they can produce year-round. So they kind of have a rotation of products that they go through the seasons. I was going to actually ask because the 80s is kind of when the farm-to-table movement seems to have taken off. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't kind of count the hundreds of years before that world, that's the only way that people (laughs) ate for thousands of years. But there was renewed focus on eating locally grown produce. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like stars 
was part of that. Oh, yeah, very much. I mean, Jeremiah Tower had just come out of Chapinese. So much of the beginnings of that happened with his time at Chez Panisse with Alice. Right. But yeah, uh, I just walked into the situation where every single ingredient that we cooked with was scrutinized. And we looked to finding the best of anything that we could use, whether it was salt or olive oil or lettuce or fish or meat. There was a reason for everything to be there. And it must feel so special, too, to have been a part of that restaurant. We hear it mentioned quite a bit on this show, a lot of chefs who either have memories of it or had some experience working there or knew somebody who worked there and were inspired by them so it's kind of like this gem of a historic restaurant that is no longer here yeah must feel kind of special to to have been a part of yeah very much very much in fact uh mario admitted that when he opened up del posto that del posto's interior was completely inspired by stars Oh, wow. Yeah. What was the interior like? Stars was really interesting. You know, it's actually still there. It's just not open for anything, but the building's still there. Um, <laughs> Maybe but we should st- break in and take st- some pictures. <laughs> yeah, Stars was funny. It had um, it had two entrances. The main entrance was on Redwood Alley, so you would enter going up a case of stairs to the host stand. So it was like this grand reveal. It had probably 25-foot high ceilings. You'd walk up a staircase to the host, and then the seating areas all had different heights. So you might walk up eight more steps up to one seating area or up three steps to another seating area, a large bar in the center, and then an open kitchen, which at the time was really quite revolutionary. And in that open kitchen, there were 14 people cooking every night, which was crazy. Yeah, that is a lot. And were there like a lot of windows or was it kind of dimly lit? No, it had windows. It had windows on the alley side that were quite large. So it was airy. In the daytime, it was quite light in there. Makes me think of a bit of this place, Mm -hmm. Zero Zero, a bit of Zuni Cafe. Yeah. And maybe a mix of foreign cinema in there or something. Yeah, it's funny. All those restaurants (laughs) are are influenced by Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah was an architect student really and that, yeah yeah that's that was his college training so he very much was focused on the architecture the design and the way that the restaurant felt and the fact that they terraced all these different seating levels was really interesting in fact they had one seating level that was to the left of the bar they called the club and that was where all the society people would sit so Denise Hale or Willie Brown or any number of very important people might be sitting in that specific area right yeah it was neat yeah I bet that was kind of a total scene yeah. in that era. Well, also at the time, there was probably half, if not less than half the amount of restaurants in this town that there right. are now. So it was super important because it set trends at the time, but there just wasn't as much to compare to. So then when, where did you go from Stars? I had quite a few stops after Stars. <laughs> I actually, when I left Stars, I opened up a small cafe south of Market called the Ace Cafe and ran that for about nine months. That was a small, uh, little tiny electric kitchen that I ran. We did cafe food. A lot of it was stuff that I learned at Stars, but uh, we were definitely limited by the fact that we had no gas. Mm-hmm. We only had electricity to cook with there. But then after that, I actually went and tried working in hotels for a little bit. I worked at the Four Seasons when it was up on Gear. Street when it was the Clift Hotel. Oh, I didn't realize Um, that was... Yeah, and it was funny because I knew about the Four Seasons because Mario had been a sous chef there. And so I kind of knew some of the people that worked there. And at the time, that was a better paying job (laughs) because it was a union job. Yep. So we did that for a little while, but it wasn't for me. And then... I worked at Aqua, so I met Michael Mina, ironically, at the same place, at the Clift Hotel. Michael Mina was the pastry chef there. 
And okay. he said, hey, we're opening this incredible new restaurant. you got to come work with us. So I was part of the opening team at Aqua. What was that experience like? That was super intense as well. <laughs> there was a lot of New York attitude at Aqua. Yeah. Yeah, a lot. And, you know, basically all the chefs there had all trained under Charlie Palmer and David Burke. So there was a lot of new technique. There was stuff that I didn't learn from Jeremiah that I did learn at Aqua. I remember the first time I saw someone make basil oil, I was like, oh, wow. You know, this is the coolest thing ever. And then, of course, that led into the concept of any flavored oil. Right. And we saw a lot of technique come out that we didn't know about before that we had to figure it out. And so a lot of learning there as well. What do you mean by New York attitude? I think a lot of us have an idea of what that means. Yeah. What do you mean when you say it? <laughs> it was very intense. It was certainly not laid back. There was, yeah. there was a very... Um, ego-driven philosophy to the kitchen. I mean, George Marone was the was the exec chef back then. Michael was a sous chef. Or no, Michael was originally the pastry chef at Aqua. But George was cocky and brash and a lot of yelling. And, you know, that was part of something else that I learned that I'm, I'm glad I experienced, but I also, I, I learned things that I didn't want to do as well. Mm-hmm. And especially the the way that people were berated and the way that people were, you know, basically screamed at in front of their peers. I saw the effect that that had on people. And um, that was a big learning lesson for me, too. It's funny. It feels like such common sense that that doesn't work very well as a leadership strategy. But so many people end up doing it. It's oh, yeah. kind of bizarre. How that yeah, works. it still happens in kitchens. Yeah, it yeah, still I does. <laughs> it still does. Especially because I'm speculating, but I'm guessing it's hot and everybody's moving fast and there's not really an environment that's conducive to sort of calm behavior. Yeah, you have to have balance, you know? In any kitchen, there's a moment where it just has to get done. You know, I need this effing plate <laughs> now. And I need it perfect. I don't I, I don't need it to be sloppy. But there, there's a lot of coordination. But there's still a high road you can take. Totally. So then um, how did you end up opening your very first restaurant? Well, I was hired at Aqua as just a... I took a job as a line cook. And then it was funny, our opening sous chef at Aqua was Tracy Desjardins. And then Tracy was recruited by Pat Coletto. And I applied for her job, and I was given her, her daytime sous chef job. I got the opportunity to become executive chef at a little restaurant on Fillmore Street called Oritalia. I had known the owner of Oritalia, and he very much was interested in me taking over that restaurant. So that was 1993, where I took over as executive chef of Oritalia, dinner-only restaurant, 48 seats. But the concept was Italian-oriental you know, Ori, Italia. I knew a lot about Italian cuisine, but I didn't know that much about Asian cuisine. So that was kind of my foray into many different Asian cuisines. And the owner was Japanese, so he was able to teach me a lot about Japanese cuisine. But Ori, Italia, I ran from 1993 to 1997. Got my best review ever from Michael Bauer there. I got three and a half stars. Nice. Um, <laughs> and we were very, very successful. We we took a restaurant that was probably seating 80 people a night to seating like 180 people a night. Wow. Yeah, it became very, very successful. Great little location on Fillmore Street. Lots yeah. of neighborhood people would just walk in, hang out at the bar. And then we had a great small plate concept back then. So you didn't have to commit to a giant meal. You could have a bunch of little bites, yeah. a bunch of different flavors. It was really fun. This is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, an ongoing series of stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. We'll be right back with Chef Bruce Hill of Zero Zero. I 
think the main reason why I left Oritalia was that the owner wanted to do this giant expansion where they wanted to open up Oritalia's all up and down the West Coast. Mm. And I just didn't believe in it. I thought that Oritalia was a San Francisco thing. I actually worked with a recruiter for the first time ever and got a job as the chef of the waterfront, which was a really, really big project. The owners had spent a lot of money on that building and they were not opening just one restaurant, but two. So it was a casual seafood restaurant on the ground floor. And then they wanted to do fusion cuisine on the top floor. So I put together two menus. I had a staff of about 80 people. It wow. was a big restaurant. And it's sort of a very notable restaurant because it's right on the waterfront, close to the ferry building. So it's kind of this very visible restaurant too. Yeah, I mean, and there was a lot of attention at the time because they did this giant remodeling. It was also, it kind of coincided with the rebirth of the waterfront. The Embarcadero Freeway had been torn down a few years before, and so it made a big splash. I mean, the people really noticed when it was redone and wanted to go check it out and see if a restaurant with a view could be great, and that's the big challenge in San Francisco is yeah. you've got a view, but and you know, nowadays there's quite a few great restaurants that are along the water, but back then it was not really expected. Yeah, so then how did you go from there to then opening your first restaurant on your hmm. So while I was the chef at Waterfront, it was interesting because it was a very good customer that introduced me to my current business partners. So Claude Jacques was this wonderful French guy who was a wine importer and he actually came up to me one day at the waterfront and said, these people aren't going to take care of you. <laughs> you must meet my friend Bill Upson. So he introduced me to Bill. There's My partners are both named Bill, Bill Upson and Bill Higgins. So Claude introduced me to Bill Upson who at the time they had more restaurants. They had like 14 restaurants back then and they were always looking to expand and do new projects. So we met and talked a little bit about what I wanted to do and he said, you know, I think we can probably do something. So let's start looking for a location for you. But in the meantime, why don't you jump in? And I actually bopped around and was kind of temporary chef at some of their current locations. And ironically, one of the locations I was the chef at was the Fog City Diner, which is now Fog City. So I was the chef there back in 2001 and ran that place for wow. about six months. Yeah, that's great. So it's great. I learned their systems. I got experience in different kitchens, managing different teams. And really refined my skills, not only as a chef, but as a restaurateur. What did you communicate to them that you wanted, that they kind of said, yeah, I think we can do that? I told them I wanted to run a notable restaurant. I wanted to have Asian flavors incorporated into the menu. Mm -hmm. And then we had some concepts. We had this early concept called Rochambeau, rock, paper, scissors, that was going to be kind of a, a menu that you could switch sauces, proteins, and vegetables around. I'm glad we didn't do that. <laughs> but it was a, it was an interesting concept yeah. at the time. Well. What happened was the dot-com boom happened. And although I was with partners who were very capable of opening a restaurant, we realized that leases and stuff were totally inflated and we just couldn't find a good deal. So what actually happened was nothing. I continued to get moved around to restaurant to restaurant just to be the fix-it man. And then in 2002, they put me into Bix and I revamped the menu there. And after about three months, Doug Biederbeck, who's the, the partner there as well, came to me and said, listen, I really want you to be involved here on a permanent basis, and I'm willing to offer you some partnership. So that was the first partnership that I got was at Bix. So 2005 comes along, Bill and Bill come to me and say, hey, there's this really cool location, but it's outside of San Francisco. Are you interested? And I was like, I'll take a look. So we drove up to Larkspur and we saw the location that is now Pico. It was then called Roxanne's. I don't know if you ever heard of Roxanne's, but Roxanne's was a very groundbreaking restaurant that was a raw vegan restaurant. And Roxanne Klein was the owner. And it was opened up with a lot of alumni from Charlie Trotter's in Chicago. Wow. And their stick was raw vegan cuisine. 
nothing was heated over 118 degrees. So the only thing that you could really cook anything with was a dehydrator. And they did this crazy food that was really, really interesting, but it was not sustainable. Roxanne's closed, I think, in 2004. It was almost nine months later that we went in there and looked at it, and I literally walked to that building for five minutes and said, yeah, let's do this. What was it about the building? It was really nicely laid out for a restaurant. It's all on one floor, and then in a basement, there's a giant prep kitchen. There's elevators that take product up from the basement up to the ground floor and the neighborhood is well healed you know yeah. there's a, a great customer base up there totally. so I knew that if we played it right and if we appealed on a broad range that we could do really well there and we have so obviously Pico is Italian inspired yep and Pico had the wood-fired pizza so we really developed our wood-fired pizza recipes at Pico when we opened up Pico I went and did pizziolo training it was like a long weekend course at a little pizzeria down in Los Angeles with this guy from Naples who would teach you the oh, dough, cool. teach you the sauce, teach you how to pull cheese. And I learned just basics of Neapolitan pizza making, which is the type of pizza we make at Pico. And at the time, my chef, Chris Whaley, wanted a new opportunity. So he said, you know, we'll train up a sous chef to become the chef at Pico and let's open up Zero Zero. So we found this location through my partners. Our landlord is the owner of Lulu next door. We worked out a deal to buy this business and opened it up with the idea that we would have mostly wood-fired pizza and pasta as entrees. So nowadays you think of flour and water and a lot of other restaurants around town where pizza or pasta is your main course. But that was our goal way back in 2006. So we opened this place up in 2010 and it really worked right away. We just wanted to make pizza that was as authentic as possible. You know, another thing that's really fostered my interest in Italian cuisine is one of my suppliers, a gentleman named Howard Case, and he has a company called Casa de Case, and he is an artisanal Italian ingredient supplier. So he brings in olive oil, flour, tomatoes, beans, but it's really interesting, everything that Howard imports, he has a personal relationship with that Italian person back in Italy. And then he also brings chefs to Italy and they do a trip every fall. It's during, it coincides with the olive oil harvest. So a couple of these trips to Italy with Howard really, really pumped up my juices about Italian cuisine and just learning more about it and yeah. knowing more about what the flavors are really like back in Italy and trying to be as true to those Italian roots as possible. You know, Americans have taken Italian food and messed it up pretty bad. <laughs> so trying to yeah. simplify it, you know? Yeah, there's kind of like the heavy, heavy casserole type of dishes. Yeah. When you go to Italy, the food is much lighter mm -hmm. and fresh yeah. and not very meat heavy. So it is kind of nice to see a restaurant that's true to that type of cuisine. Yeah, and also understanding the regional differences in Italian cuisine. There's 21 right. different regional cuisines within the country of Italy. You got really into Asian-inspired cooking after being exposed to a lot of Italian food. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of came back to that Italian and California Mediterranean food. Yeah. Are you planning to venture back to the Asian side at some point? You know, or are you kind of happy in this type of cuisine area? I would love to own a restaurant that was purely Japanese. That would be my dream. Yeah. But I just have too many commitments. But we still use a lot of Asian influence. You know, in the mid-90s when I ran Or Italia, it was called fusion cuisine. Mm -hmm. But now it's just called food. <laughs> and everyone, you know, puts sesame oil on things. And yeah. it's not, people don't see a disconnect there now. Yeah. You know, Chef Joyce here at Zero Zero ran an amazing poke last week. That was really kind of a salmon crudo. It was right. cubes of salmon and sesame paste and avocado 
avocado, and if you closed your eyes, it tasted pretty Japanese, but it was it was appropriate here. And and my my thing too is that I love Asian flavors, but I always try to make sure that those flavors are wine and beer friendly, so they work with the drinks that we're having. Mm-hmm. And you never I never venture into too sweet or too spicy. So where did the name Zero Zero come from? Oh, it just came from the flower that we use. Yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> yeah, Dopio Zero. It's funny. Um, I remember. When I was first trying to learn about Neapolitan pizza, A16 was one of the only places making real Neapolitan pizza back then. And Mm -hmm. I sat at the counter and watched Chef Chris Hill make pizza, and I was spying his flower bags under the counter. It's like, oh, look at that special flower he's got. It's got that blue (laughs) label on it. i got to find out what that stuff is. Did he reveal it to you? (laughs) Oh, yeah. He was really nice about it, yeah. Back then, it was a flower called Caputo. Now, Howard Case brings in all these different amazing zero-zero flowers, and we use a different flower we actually use molino passini which ironically comes from northern italy mm-hmm. but it's an amazing zero zero flower a lot of chefs in town use that flower and it's ironic because the kind of pizza you make is neapolitan neapolitan right? yeah. yeah it's from southern italy very right, much right. yeah so can you speak a little bit to how you brought in chef joyce and sort of the rest of the team at zero zero and how your role sort of ended up morphing well i really consider a super important part of my job to be mentoring and teaching teaching people. Chef Joyce has worked here at Zero Zero since we opened in 2006 and now has been the executive chef here for a little over two years. But she was brought in as a line cook and she just had an interest in everything. So she did pastries for a while. She was a sous chef. She became the executive sous chef under Colin Dewey. And then when Colin decided to move on, she was the obvious choice. We we had to talk her into a little bit, but she's incredibly gifted and we knew that she could do the job. So we kind of talked her into it, but there is a daily engagement that I have with my chefs and and my dining room managers as well where we're constantly talking to each other about you know what problems we're managing and how we're pushing things forward and how we're staying seasonal and how we're always trying to capture the best items that are in the market we kind of split up our market shopping duties I cover a couple of markets a week Joyce covers the ferry building some of my other chefs go up to Marin County to the Marin County markets and so we're constantly hunting and gathering you know even (laughs) if it's a zucchini you know (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really important part of kind of driving yourself, always driving to find that new thing. Really cool new ingredient that we just found that we haven't completely figured out. There is one farmer now who's growing this edible sunflower that they harvest when it's about the size of a 50 cent piece, little teeny bud. And you can take them, you have to trim them a little bit and then quickly fry them and then you can eat them whole. And so I'm like, that's so cool. We have to serve those. So I'm always on the hunt for something new, something unique, or I'm on the hunt for something that we haven't had for nine months that's been out of season that's going to come back. You know, we're right now in the beginning of the end of the fall produce. We have a lot of peppers right now, but we're going to be seeing quince, pomegranate, and persimmon pretty soon. So we're looking forward to those things. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Can you kind of speak to how that culture that you created here sort of fostered a place where female chefs were able to rise to the top and master the kitchen? Well, I have to say, first thing is that I didn't pick an angle to promote male or females. However, partly through my experience at Aqua, I realized that mutual respect, it it has to be the cornerstone of your operating principle. That's kind of where it all starts, is this concept 
of mutual respect between men and women, but also mutual respect between the highest and the lowest paid within the restaurants. So no one is looked down upon because they're the dishwasher or the busboy. Right. You know, and part of that culture, I drive that culture by A, knowing everybody's name. One of the rules is that I don't want anyone to be called amigo, buddy, or you. And I come in the restaurant, whenever I'm here at any of my restaurants, I greet everyone as I come in, ask them how they're doing, make eye contact with people, and just let people know that we're gonna treat them respectfully. So it's kind of a simple, but common sense really right? goes a long way. <laughs> the other thing is that there's constant guidance with managers. You know, we find out, we promote a new manager, and then we find out that they're being a little too intense mm-hmm. and, and yelling at people, and we gotta pull them aside and say, listen, that's not how we do it. Mm-hmm. We actually have a rule that if you're going to do a disciplinary action with an employee, it has to be two managers and it has to be in private. Mm-hmm. So that brings respect to the situation. It reduces any sense of shame, I guess, because yeah. it, it actually yeah. makes the employee probably listen to what's happening versus yeah. feeling embarrassed. Yeah. I mean, you know, employees make mistakes. It's funny. One of the things that I think you're going to ask me a little later was what's the most important and what's the most troubling thing? Yeah. And it's all people. Right. Why don't we jump into that then? Yeah. So what, sure. what has been the most challenging thing about... People. Um, <laughs> you heard People it. and their behavior. But it's so varied. It's really interesting is that what people do inspires you so much. And what people do is maddening sometimes, mm-hmm. you know? So we... We are irrational creatures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, also those that are drawn to this industry are special. Yeah. In um, some criminal way sometimes. <laughs> You know that there was that famous uh, line from the 1970s, this famous cookbook author, MFK Fisher, took a study. At the time, it was something like 80% of the male prison population listed their occupation as cook. Oh, man. So we're a bunch of thugs. You know, restaurant people are type A personalities. We're adrenaline junkies. Yeah. And we're just wired differently because the, the, those that really thrive in this environment kind of are a little bit psycho. <laughs> and <laughs> it just is what it is. So, you know, you have to be patient. And sometimes there's something that'll happen that'll really make you mad and you have to step back from it and take your time and manage it the right way. And yeah. sometimes I choose just to say nothing. A lot of this, the personality traits that make someone great at something are also the reason why they might have faults. Yeah. And you can't really have the good parts without the bad parts that that same personality trait. It all comes allows. together. It all comes together. And you know, this is kind of a strange analogy, but there's a dog whisperer <laughs> and he talks about the healthy pack. And he'll have a dog that has these bad personality traits that he'll bring him into the healthy pack. And then the pack actually will start to correct that behavior because that dog assimilates into this healthy pack that has good behavior. And Mm -hmm. we absolutely employ that concept at all my restaurants. And so when we bring on a new person, that person will have a tryout period. And then if anyone that works at the restaurant says, I don't know about that guy. We'll take a pause and, you know, it might not stop us from hiring that person. But throughout the process, everyone who works here has a vote on everyone's behavior. So, so why don't we jump to a happier question? What's been the most rewarding thing about everything you've 
been able to accomplish so far? Oh, I would say the most rewarding thing is just creating great experiences for people. You know, we have this format where we have tables and chairs and people get to hang out and eat and talk and, you know, commiserate and bond. And it's a human experience. You know, it's it goes back to people again. The other super rewarding thing is just watching the people that work for me become incredible at what they do. You know, I, I have quite a few people that started with basically no experience that are incredibly talented now, and I, I worry about them getting poached by someone else. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's really rewarding. It's also really rewarding just to talk to someone who comes up to you and said, I had a great experience at your business. It's funny, in the world of Yelp and all this other online stuff, doesn't hold, uh, it's not just not even close to the feeling that I get when I talk to someone face to face. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time sure, today. Sure. It's really fascinating to hear your story and kind of the history connected to some pretty memorable San Francisco experiences and restaurants yeah. and, and chefs. So thanks so much. You're welcome. You just heard the 39th episode of Menu Stories, an ongoing series of multimedia stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. If you enjoyed the story, please spread the word to your friends about the work we do. Subscribe to the Menu Stories series on menustories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox. There, you'll also find the complete episode with Chef Bruce Hill with pictures and a behind-the-scenes video. You can find us on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram at Menu Stories, and on Twitter, we are at Menu underscore Stories. This podcast is also available on iTunes and SoundCloud. This episode was produced and photographed by yours truly, and all video production work was done by Patrick Wong. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and until next time, happy eating. Thank you.